Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, I'm speaking with Elliot Zagman, co-host of the China Tech Investor Podcast and full-stack media producer, executive coach, and international PR consultant. Today, we discuss trends in China derived from stock market activities, why so many Chinese companies choose to list on American stock exchanges, and how foreign brands can better prepare themselves for partnering with Chinese companies. Elliot, what is your favorite Chinese brand and why? I don't have a favorite Chinese brand, but here's one that I like. <laughs> I like Meituan Dianping because of what they've done in a number of different ways. I like that they have kind of reimagined uh, the super app, right? When it comes to delivery, when it comes to uh, you know service ratings, when it comes to travel booking, and I like how we're seeing they're setting an example that we're seeing spread throughout. Uh, a number of different places, particularly in Southeast Asia. So you see that Grab and Gojek and a number of other firms are starting to uh, to kind of apply what Meituan is doing elsewhere. So while Meituan, they're, they're, they started off as kind of a, a copy to China from the U.S., now they've created something that other companies are copying from China and applying elsewhere. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Hey, everybody. We're on the show here with Elliot. Elliot, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about you know where you came from growing up, where your interest in China came from, or where your interest in Asia came from, and how you ended up out there. Yeah, well, um, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, so uh, like Western Michigan, and I grew up in a long family of, of of entrepreneurs. So that's kind of the way that I think about business uh, and the way that kind of I've, I, I've learned to you know, think about, about wealth and money as well. But as far as what drew me to China, I, when, I, when I was graduating from college in 2008, like I, I didn't really feel like I wanted to you know, go and get a, a, a quote unquote job job. Um, I had traveled and done some programs or I, I'd done an internship in, in Kenya um, and went to the UK for a bit while I, while I was in school. And I got the opportunity to go to Beijing with a teaching program um, where the, if you taught English for them for a year, they would cover your expenses. Um, they would give you a stipend and, and kind of help you adjust, give you housing. And uh, also I got to Beijing one week before the Olympics and got to see you know Usain Bolt's uh, 100 meter you know, record setting gold medal run. So that was kind of like what brought me there in the first place. Uh, and then I went back to the U.S. I got married and went to grad school. And then we ended up going back to China in 2011. And um, that's where things kind of took off from there. At the top of the show, we talked about all the 
work that you do. I, I mentioned the mm-hmm. broad range of things that you do. We'll dig into those a little bit, but it's across two different countries because you, you, do you split your time between China and Thailand? Yeah. So, uh, there's a little background. So my, my wife, uh, the reason why I'm in Thailand is actually my, my wife is a, is a diplomat for the United Nations. So we were, we were based in Beijing for a long time. She ended up started working down, started working down here around 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she, we had kind of all of our stuff still based in Beijing. Um, and then, uh, right around late 2017, we kind of started moving everything down. So I'm still back and forth a lot more, but yeah, we moved home base down here. But yeah, I, my my work is still mostly focused on uh, on China still. But I am very very interested in in doing an increasing amount uh, where I'm focused kind of on um, kind of the intersection between China and Southeast Asia uh, as that is growing. Tell us a little bit about the cross section of of the work that you're doing. I'm a curious person. I try not to take myself too seriously. I try to have a good time, and I try to just kind of pursue to learn and communicate about what I learned, right? So one, one thing that I joke is I'm kind of like a one-man media company, whereas on the front you have, um, I, I'm a columnist, I have a podcast host, um, I do a, a number of different things that are kind of public facing. And then on the back end, um, I also will do advisory services for companies. Um, I've done a lot of executive coaching. I've done uh, international PR work in addition to a number of research projects as well. There's a, a number of different hats that I wear, but it it all basically is centered around usually China's tech space and also just uh, learning and sharing what I've learned. So you, you also run your own podcast and it's called mm-hmm. China Tech Investor, correct? Yes. Okay. So what was, what was the inspiration behind uh, starting that? Uh, what kind of information were you looking to dig into and deliver and for whom? Well, yeah, well, one thing is that personally for me, the older I've gotten, the more, for lack of a better term, like just for the more money I have, the more like I'm interested in investing, right? Um, and I'm interested in things like the stock market. I'm interested in, in equities. I'm interested in kind of how companies work and how to evaluate companies from an investor's perspective. And I have obviously done a lot of work with Chinese tech companies. And a lot of these companies are going public in the US. And especially in 2018, when we started the podcast, it was disproportionate to US firms, right? And that that there were a lot more Chinese firms that were going public than um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of US firms going public that year. So there, I had a lot of questions around that. But then I also, I met uh, I met a guy named James Hull, who's now my co-host. And he is somebody who's also an American, and he's been in China uh, around the same amount of time as I was. But he, his, his experience is a little different. His skill set's a little bit different. And while, while, while I'm somebody who's a lot more of kind of this, uh, I, I like to think about things like strategy and communication. I've worked in HR and PR, a lot more on the, the, the human side of things. He has... Uh, he's a portfolio manager and has a lot more experience on the financial side of things, looking and you know, digging deep into the numbers. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I thought about is like, said, you know, James, like, why don't we start a podcast where we just kind of, you know, we, we talk about these companies uh, and, you know, from both like a, a broader strategic perspective and also a, uh, you know, a, a deeper financial perspective. So we started this podcast uh, almost a year ago. And we, we, we seek truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. So we, we kind of look at the trends that are happening within uh, China's kind of digital, uh, you know, digital economy 
And uh, we, we have a, a watch list of, of some kind of key listed Chinese stocks mm-hmm. that often will be in, in, uh, in investors' portfolios. Uh, and we, we, we watch it, we keep track of it, and we look at it both from being on the ground within China uh, and also from the numbers as well, right? Because I think that you have to have both of those perspectives. You guys talk about the trends. Um, what, are, what are some of the trends that uh, you might be seeing? There is a lot of there is there are slowdowns that are happening within the Chinese economy, mm-hmm. and there is a like the Chinese economy is at kind of a, a crucial axis right now or a crucial juncture, in that like they their growth they have to figure out how to manage kind of this next stage of growth right you can't they have they maximize a lot of that that low hanging fruit, and even with these tech companies the copy to China model that we, we kind of saw two different stages. One was copy to China, right? Where mm-hmm. you saw Uber had ride sharing and then DD created ride sharing. The, another good example would be like just Google and then Baidu, right? Yeah. So that, that, that there was a lot of kind of low hanging fruit of just taking these ideas from Silicon Valley and applying them to China. And then there was a second wave where you'd have kind of this iterative innovation that a lot of these companies would succeed at or would have this growth by um, kind of learning how to maybe take a model that originated with out of Silicon Valley and kind of tweaking it into something that and iterating it into something that ends up looking quite different in China. I think you know, I mentioned Meituan earlier. I think Meituan's a great example of this where you know they they originally copied to China from Groupon, right? But what's Groupon doing? Groupon's doing nothing now. They but what they've been were able to do is kind of iterate, you know, kind of you take advantage of um, the dense populations in China's cities to to really uh, kind of maximize this kind of delivery. They merged with Dianping to kind of form this kind of combination between Yelp and you know uh, uh, that food and food delivery. And then also because they have that that pool of data, they can go into so many other areas like mobility, or travel booking, et cetera, et cetera. They're kind of that second wave of using the the specific advantages and the specific environment within China to kind of create something new and bigger and different. Um, but a lot of that stuff is kind of ending now and that there's less of that low hanging fruit. Um, so we're, we're just seeing slower growth, right? Um, and then another result of that is uh, that the bubble has burst when it comes to funding, right? So yeah, uh, that really right now off it's, yeah, so, and we're seeing a ripple effect of that. So for, for example, um, a lot of these companies in China, these platforms that rely on ad sales. So like take, for example, Baidu. Mm-hmm. Baidu relies a lot on ad sales. Now, mm-hmm. if you are, and uh, a startup, right? And you have to, you're, you're an app and you're trying to attract users. How are you going to attract users? You're going to uh, buy ad space and put out ads on bigger platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Like Baidu, for example. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot of these, co- these bigger companies in China that rely on ads, their uh, revenue is not doing as well. Um, so these are just some of the, the trends that we're seeing. Uh, additionally, there are things like, uh, you know, in the content space, we see you know, how to deal with kind of a, a, a kind of the, the whole regulatory and censorship kind of regime that China mm-hmm. has right now mm-hmm. that is hard to really, uh, is, is hard for anyone to navigate. Um, and, uh, and, 
but then there's also kind of some exciting trends as well. For one area that I think I'm, we're generally pretty bullish on is kind of the shift to enterprise and how one, if there is one area where there's still some low hanging fruit, it is through enterprise services. And the leaders in that are, you know, Alibaba, of course, and then, um, you know, Baidu, Tencent and, and a few others, but there is, um, that's one area where I think that we can still be pretty optimistic. What What's an example of a service that playing well with those those big giants? I think Alibaba's probably they probably have a head start because they've been doing kind of a two B services for quite some time now. Mm-hmm. In that they they have these merchants on their Taobao platform. That you know what what will keep a merchant on their platform? Well, does it is it worthwhile for them to stay on, right? And so they have to be able to offer their merchants uh, services, basically, to to incentivize them to stay on the platform, right? So whether this be um, systems when it comes to, for example, like Ding Talk, like Ding Ding, uh, which is basically a um, Slack for China, but it often does a lot more, right? But it's a, a 2B uh, business. There's right. also things like customer relationship management, uh, data and AI solutions that they can offer that um, assist these smaller merchants that they have on their platforms or that that work with them in one way or another. I mean, even a company like ByteDance, which is known for kind of its its junk news and short videos, even they are are experimenting with having kind of a an enterprise recommendation algorithm for whatever services a company might need. I don't really know exactly how that would work out, but it's an area where everyone knows that there is some growth. So everyone has to try to experiment in one way or another. So Elliot, you mentioned the amount of uh, the inordinate amount of Chinese companies that were, were listing on U.S. stock exchanges, for example, or international stock exchanges. But why, why are they not doing it locally? Well, they need, they need capital. Uh, and they need dollars and to be able to do it in, um, so if you look at, if you compare, for example, like NYSE or NASDAQ, which is where, which is the, the exchanges that these companies are listing at, they're the investors who are investing and who are actually putting that money in there are often institutional investors, right? So they're, they're more steady. There's more investors. And they're, they're, they're more reliable. If you look at these exchanges that they have in the mainland in China, a lot more of the investors are retail investors. So they're more fickle. The money can come in and out very, very quickly. And the markets are just far less reliable. If you look at the way in which someone plays the market in, in China versus the US, it's very different. And the word play there is very important uh, because in the US, like, what I do with a lot of, if I'm investing, is I often will have a portfolio of stocks and I diversify that portfolio and I hold it for the most part and it will go up over time more than it goes down, right? Okay. Um, it, so, it, But it has its ups, it has its downs, but the, the fundamentally what you're, do, what you're saying is, I think that the economy and the, the, these companies performance will improve more than it gets worse. It's like the level of the water is going to rise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. In China, the way that the stock market works is, is not really like that. It it hasn't, um, if you look at kind of over a 10 year span or a five year span, it doesn't have that kind of steady, um, uh, rising trend. 
uh, what it has is a lot of ups, a lot of downs. So the way that that people will participate in mainland Chinese stock markets is it, as as playing the stock market. Like playing is an important word. Like like when you play a game at a casino, mm-hmm. right? So they're 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 trying to kind of find the right time to buy in, the right time to sell, and that's not you know like I said earlier, you know I'm. A, I come from generation after generation of small business owners, right? I don't like playing those games, right? That's not how I like to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that for me, that the that the way that the U.S. markets behave is something I'm far more interested in. Yeah. And uh, and I think most investors are like that, which is why the U.S. markets are the still the the king of the castle right now. So. And and if you're if you're uh, trying to raise money, that's where you're going to look. Is there a populace in China that play in the stock markets? Absolutely, yeah. How do they play in the stock markets locally? Like they're like if you so like I mean different people. And it's just because they don't have you know they're not allowed to have casinos. Everybody goes to Macau. No, no, but they, yeah, I think that's like you, you, that's kind of a joke, but it's, it's also kind of true <laughs> is that, yeah, like there is, it's a, it's that like people like to like to play it. Right. Um, yeah. you know, you, and, and it, it goes so up and so down that it's something that, that is exciting and it's fun. And there's, you know, like a lot of the, especially the wealthier people that I know, um, the entrepreneur types, they uh yeah they love playing with stock market um i mean but if you're doing it to because you actually want but it's it's playing it's not investing you know if people invest what do they do they buy real estate right because in china right there is the base the the foundational guarantee is that if you buy real estate it'll keep going up for 100 years um yeah, that's the that's the, it's the, China the assumption. That, yeah, but 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 still, it's like it's kind of this. If there's if there's any real pact that is made between you know the the Communist Party and 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 the the populace, it's that that if that your real estate will will more off that will continue to rise in value, right? That's kind of mm-hmm. the um, that's kind of that that like that finger in the dike that, you know, True. everything else can go yeah. bad in the Chinese economy. But if that stays there, you know, yeah. p- people will be okay. You look at a lot of the trends, you look at a lot of the industries, which ones are you liking? Even for companies that are looking to potentially go into the market in China, what, what industries mm-hmm. are you liking? Where, what is trending? What is, is, uh, what are, where are the opportunities? Uh, well, like I said, like when I was talking about, um, you know the, the U.S. markets versus Chinese markets, right? For me, I I am far more. I, far, I definitely prefer the idea of getting comfortable slowly to getting rich quick, right? right. So, um, so to me, I'm I'm thinking, and you could you could look at all these areas like, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, like uh, electric vehicles, where you know you can they're they're very very kind of up and down, or you can look at you know blockchain and stuff like that, where there is, it's a lot more kind of a gambler's mentality, but the way that I look at it is there's, there's two broader trends that I think there's still a lot of room for growth for. And one is education. Um, so whether it be something like language education, like with these companies like, uh, like VIP kid, um, or things like adult, uh, 
education or continue learning. You know, I've, I've worked a lot and still kind of do a good amount of work for, for Jirhu, which is a, um, uh, it, they start off kind of as China's Quora, but they've kind of grown and evolved into something different. And one of the reasons why they've been able to grow and evolve is because there's a lot of demand for paid online learning, right? Whether you, so you have these kind of uh, uh, experts um, that will that will give lectures or kind of teach courses on this this knowledge sharing platform, Jirhu. Um, and you've seen that the company has really been able to kind of move to the next level with those kinds of services that they offer. And the, the paid knowledge sharing and paid content uh, market in China is, is there's a lot of room for growth. Uh, and, and especially for, for American companies or for foreign companies that have connections with, um, you know, some of these experts or some of these, uh, you know, credible institutions, there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of opportunity there. And the second is another area where, you know, American and, and, and other Western companies really have an opportunity because they can really offer something is, is healthcare. And so I was speaking with a, um, I remember in, I think it was like 2012, I was speaking with a, a VP at Goldman Sachs in China. It's a Chinese guy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, where, where would you put your money, you know, in, in what sector of the, the Chinese economy right now? And he said, well, you know, there's all these uncertainties. You know, the government could do something in real estate prices, you know, or become less reliable mm-hmm. or, you know, there's, there's trade issues. But the one thing that, that, that the government can't stop, that geopolitics can't stop, that is not going to affect be affected by the twists and turns of the economy is that Chinese people were, are going to be keep going to keep on getting old. Nothing's going to stop Chinese people from getting old. They need to be taken care of, right? So whether it be some of it is, is areas like hospice or um, uh, long-term care uh, and other areas, just more, just better private hospitals, um, but also even things like pharmaceuticals as well that can be you know licensed or distributed to you know, kind of for more the the lao bai sing as i say um so both in high end services and also just kind of the, the generic services like there's a lot of growth to be had in the in in healthcare in china well uh, and and also look at tencent for example what tencent is doing what uh, are they doing in the area of, of healthcare they're making they've made tons of investments i mean tencent oh. basically a, a vc at this point oh i know i mean that's Absolutely. that's that's that's, a, that, that's an over overstatement but They've made loads, they have so much user data, but they've also made so many investments in, they have these things like we, called we clinics. I believe that's the term that they use, but basically they, they've, they've made these small kind of uh, um, uh, like clinics, these like mini hospitals kind of around the, um, you know, that the, the, we're starting to see pop up around large cities. Um, and they're, they're doing a lot of experimentation around how to leverage their, their network to better deliver healthcare services. You do a lot of coaching and we're going to switch tax a little bit here. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of coaching for Chinese companies. Now, mm-hmm. typically when I talk to the Laowai, the foreigners uh, in, in China who do a lot of consulting, it's because they know China very, very well. And they try to teach other companies from outside China about China. You do not almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. You do it the other way. You are helping Chinese companies learn more about what the West? Well, there's a, there's a number of different things that I would do, yeah. but usually what I end up do doing, the, what has happened more often than not is that there will be usually a startup within China that is, some of them are expanding globally or some of them, they might have to be listed overseas, right? So they want some form of 
global presence, but they're not going, it's not number one priority for them, but they need somebody to have to deal with that stuff. Right. So oftentimes I get brought in for, for one reason or another is for a lot of them earlier on. Usually I would just be like, our CEO needs an English teacher. Come and meet with him. And then uh, you meet with them for a while and they're like, okay, can you have this role for us? Right. And then, you know, you do, and then I'll, I'll be do PR consulting or I'll do any number of different services for them. Uh, but that's usually how things started out with these things. So often what I am now is, um, you know, a lot of these companies, they just, they'll keep me around and maybe I'll have a retainer that'll, that, uh, I'll have, that they'll have me on. And then, uh, it's, it's usually pretty, there's, there'll be a month or two where maybe they don't need me at all. And then, okay, well, we have this, this special issue that we have. Can we come in and win and talk to us about it? So the idea here is that I know the people at the company, I know the founders of the company, and I also usually know the media as well. And I know the investment community to some extent, right? Yeah. So it, it's usually what, what they like having me on for is that I'm somebody who, if they have a, a situation that maybe um, is more kind of internationally sensitive or, or whatnot, um, I'm somebody who they can, you know, who's a handy person to keep around. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's kind Just of the most, um, yeah. 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 Well, I guess that, that, that's kind of how I would, uh, the kind of the most categorize your, the way you operate with them. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, they kind of put you on retainer and then they, you know, when, when it comes up, they, they call you. What do, what do you find is but, the but, most... Go ahead. But I used to do a lot more um, like leadership development, and I don't do that as much anymore. Um, so what, what, used to ha- what I used to do is you know, with the company that I, I, I still do some work with them, but because I'm not in China as much, I don't do it that much. But we used to do a lot of leadership development for executive teams, um, kind of doing things like, like setting up things like your mission and vision and values, kind of trying to orient uh, kind of the goals as far as the, the culture is concerned. Uh, a lot more leadership focused uh, training and coaching. Uh, we still do that some, but because I'm in China less, it's something that I, I don't spend as much time focused on. Are these Western things that Chinese companies don't typically focus on very much? Well, they, they do focus on them. It's just different from, they focus on them in different ways. Uh, one thing that I started doing in 2017 is I started writing for a website called Huxiu, which is kind of like a Chinese kind of maybe business insider or um, uh, ink, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I started writing about a lot of like management and leadership issues. Right. And that's kind of how I, um, I think that kind of parlayed into some business in those areas. Um, but I think also they just, I think it's valuable to have other perspectives. Um, and I think that a lot of companies do value that. Right. So the way that I will often come in is I can't, I, you know, they're going to do what they want to do. Um, but the, I will usually just look at things from a different angle and very usually if the founder or the CEO has some, some sort of, if they're the, the kind of person that, that kind of values that kind of fresh take or fresh perspective, uh, they usually will, will kind of include me and involve me, um, in, in what they do. Okay, so in all your experience in working and helping Chinese companies, what is different or unique about the way they're set up, the way they operate, uh, the way they function that you can say is different than uh, the way North American companies or other Western companies, European companies are similarly you know, set up or the way that they function? How, what are the unique differences that you've noticed? Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot more similarities between a, an internet or tech company 
in Silicon Valley and one in Beijing than there is between an uh, internet or tech company in Beijing and a state-owned company in Beijing. Um, hmm. the, the bigger question should be what's the difference between these, these internet companies and, what, and a state-owned company in China? Because there's a lot of differences there. But there, there aren't that many differences uh, when it comes to, especially on the lower, like the, the startup level or the smaller company level, when they're still, they're not these kind, they're not Alibaba or anything like that. Um, but there, there are also, even with Alibaba, there's a number, like there's a lot of similarities with how they operate and, and other multinationals. Um, like, you can talk about the ways in which they have to kind of respond to um, the way that kind of the, the government and the, and the party is, is, is the role they play within you know Chinese society, but still the way that these companies function is is quite similar to uh, a traditional multinational. It's just that that if your if your number one priority is or your number one market, if your home market is China, the nature of the Chinese system does require certain kind of obligations that might be a little bit different than in uh, in the U.S. or, or Europe, for example. Um, but I do think from a broader perspective, the greater difference uh, is between like the, the, the newer, younger, fresher companies in China and the state-owned company. Excellent advice. Elliot, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Todd. It's great, to, great talking with you. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.